This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Good evening. Um, I'm going to do that thing that teachers do, professors do in large classrooms that you guys are going to hate me for, but I'm going to ask you to move down so that you're not just all across and you're going to do it because you're nice people. So just come get closer. Thank you. Well, it appears we have a lot of competition for this event tonight, which is really unfortunate for those people that made other choices, because this is the place to be tonight, to hear Cornelius Eadie. Um, this is the Simpson Duvall Lectureship Series, um, which is to honor two professors who taught many years ago for a very long time and created a beautiful legacy of the liberal arts at this university. Um, I was fortunate enough to take a Dostoevsky class from Clem Simpson, um, which was as mythic as everyone makes it out to be. He was, he was an extraordinary man. Um, and then I took a historical quest for utopia from Duvall as a freshman, Jan term class, Doug, and I was too afraid to go. So I think I went for the first week and then it was like a 300 level class. I don't know how they let me in. Um, but anyway, because of their um, role at this university, we are able to bring um, writers and speakers um, with the stature of Mr. Edie, and it's an absolute privilege to welcome here him to our campus and have him sit in on our classes this week and meet with students individually. Um, so he was born in Rochester, New York. Um, he's lived and taught in many cities and many universities and colleges around the country. Um, he currently holds the Miller Chair in Poetry at the University of Missouri, uh, and he commutes because his home is in New York City. He's the author of eight collections of poetry. I hope I have that number right. The first cartoons published in 1980, and the most recent, Hard-Headed Weather in 2008. Um, his honors are many. Um, I'll mention just a few. His poetry has won the Lamont Poetry Prize. It's been nominated for the Pulitzer. His collection, Brutal Imagination, was a finalist for the 2001 National Book Award. He's also a deeply committed musician and the author of musical theater, which was really interesting to hear him talk about in our classes. Um, in 1996, he and fellow poet Toy Dericot, am I pronouncing that? Dericot. Derricott, founded Cave Canem um, Foundation, whose mission is to support and cultivate the professional growth of African-American poets. And I wanted to say something about this to you, about his work, because it is, um, it's just so important, and it's, it's, it's flourished into such an amazing um, uh, fellowship program. Um, the organization's community has grown from a gathering of 26 poets to become an influential movement with a renowned faculty and national fellowship of 344 poets at the date of the information that I have. Awards received by these fellows include, among many others, the NAACP Image Award, the Laughlin Award from the Academy of American Poets, the National Poetry Series Selection, the Kaveh Kanem Poetry Prize, and the Ruth Lilly Fellowship. Um, Fellows have over 170 books in print and hold significant positions in universities around the country. Faculty members, and you'll recognize these names, um, Elizabeth Alexander was named inaugural poet for President Obama in 2008. Many of you maybe heard her read her poem. Um, they've twice won the National Book Award. Uh, 2002 Kaveh Kanem Poetry Prize winner Tracy K. Smith received the 2012 Pulitzer Prize for Poetry and faculty member Natasha Trethaway, inaugural winner of the Kaveh Kanem Poetry Prize in 1999, was named U.S. Poet Laureate in 2012. Um, before we welcome Cornelius Edie to read, I wanted to quote him um, from an interview that appeared in Baum, Artists in Conversation, um, an interview by Patricia Spears Jones. This is, I think, a really important um, Part of, part of his contribution to writing. Um, under discussion was his book uh, of brutal imagination um, in 2001. 
the Susan Smith poems of the first two section. In 1995, Susan Smith drove her children to a lake's boat launch. This is historically true. They were in car seats in the back, two very, very small children. Um, she rolled the van up to the edge of the water, and the van rolled into the water, and both of her children were drowned, um, murdered. For nine days, which is also the, the period of brutal imagination that it covers those nine days, Susan Smith told the world that they'd been kidnapped by a black man. She made him up. He was imaginary. On his exploration of this easily within reach black man, the erasure of one's humanity by scapegoating and perception and the hard journey to black self-made identity, Edie says, this is from the interview, this is about all of us and we really need to start examining why we do what we do or why we set up these people to be who they are. I wanted you to be able to enter the poems and find some space for yourself as a reader in the story. The idea of getting the reader into the position of thinking that it could be him or her, what it is like to live with that dread, that terror, that someone can come and pluck you away. That's one of the effects of life of being African-American in this country. And now, Arab Americans are feeling it more than we are, but it's still out there. You're right, we're looking for that person, and it's a skin tone. And people are finding that person, and it's a skin tone. That's what that terrorism is about. So the poems are an attempt to get you in the frame of mind of what it actually is to live there for a moment, just for a moment. Please welcome Cornelius Eady. Am I on? You guys hear me? Okay, good. good. That was a wonderful introduction. I, oh, it, it was so good, I didn't recognize myself. <laughs> um, but thank you all for coming. Um, yeah, I, I guess um, I should. I should read brutal imagination, and I probably will read some of those poems from, from the cycle. Um, because it's, it, um, it does seem to be that we are more and more um, having to deal with the ideal of the, uh, uh, that person that we want to have the duty of uh, taking our collective fears uh, on, um, yeah. So, but, 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 um, we've also been talking this week about about uh, other things, about writing and what it is to be a writer and all the all the other things that 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 come with that life. Um, and I thought to start the reading, it might be appropriate to start with not a poem, but with a excerpt from a. Um, memoir that I've been working on, uh, on and off for a few years. Um, it's not titled, um, and it's not finished. But um, um, I, as, as, as it was said in the introduction, I come from upstate New York, and um, Spokane reminds me a lot of, of, of Rochester, uh, my hometown. Um, you, have a, a t you have a city that has a downtown, it has a river that runs right through it, and it has a falls, the um, hotel where I'm staying, at, um, I have a room that has this right on that, that river uh, and the falls. And uh, I spent a lot of time as a kid uh, wandering around the falls of the Genesee River. So it feels a lot like Rochester, it's, you know. And, 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 I, and I guess the temperament is kind of, is kind of uh, uh, similar too, though of course you, don't, you guys don't get 60% overcast skies, right? You should hope not. <laughs> you know? so, 
but 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 you know it has that kind of that kind of feel to it. Uh, but the memoir is 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 centered in my hometown of Rochester, New York. Um, uh, Philip Schultz uh, comes up from um, um, Rochester. Uh, Marie Howe, we guys know his, her work, is a Rochesterian. Um, some other poets that taught in Rochester. Uh, Anthony Heck um, was uh, uh, taught in Rochester for a few years. Um, but um, this is to me the um, kind of the examination of, of what the raw material uh, of the poems that happened later would be. And to start with, I think I'd start with, I'll begin with a um, true story um, of the first time I had an, any uh, encounter in any way, shape, or form with poetry. And it's called Poetry. Poetry. It's Valentine's Day, fourth grade, Nathaniel Rochester School, number three. Today, we learn about poetry. Mrs. Edwards, our teacher, who is my age now, but very old then, has reached the unit in her teaching guide concerning rhyme and meter. But I already know what I need to know. Like a good kid, my body automatically squirms at the word. Why? Have I ever read a poem before this? No. Neither has any other child in the class. But the word just has that sound about it, like vegetables, that makes us want to shove our hands in our pockets and pout. It's a grown-up word, a suck-the-fun-from-out-of-the-room word, like behave. Every kid winces as if the lips of a dreaded ant were upon them. Today, class, Mrs. Edwards says in that hopeful tone I've grown to use myself over the years, you will choose a valentine and write them a poem. But no one loves anybody this morning. The word poetry has clammed our affection up. Mrs. Edwards, however, has this going for her. She comes prepared. She's the third teacher we've had so far this year. Our first grew ill or pregnant. Our second young, idealistic, maybe fresh from college, only lasted a few days. We could smell her fear. She wanted to be our friend, which is the weakest thing a new teacher could ever do. One afternoon, in the middle of a lesson she knows we're not listening to, her voice begins to crack. Then she begins to sob. Her weeping eyes look out on a class that holds absolutely no pity. Twenty-odd smug faces asking, what are you doing here? She slams her book on the desk and runs. Pleasure buzzes among ourselves. In the war between grown-ups and kids, this day is a lot of custard scalp. Mrs. Edwards understands that the only things a fourth-grade class will understand is respect earned through a little unspecified fear. Some people have a voice that tells the kid, don't try it. Mrs. Edwards lets us hear this voice on our first day with us. This is why, for this new exercise, we will moan quietly in our heads and take out a sheet of paper. Poetry. Mrs. Edwards, not wanting to waste all morning on this, has taken pity on us by writing out a group of words on the blackboard that end in the letter S. Use the words on the board, she says, to write your poem. Give the poem to your valentine, or if you're too shy, to Mrs. Edwards, who will pin them unsigned. Our dumb pencils skate the paper. We shift in our seats. We sniffle, bored. Why do they ask this stuff of us? What do they want to know? How nosy can you get? Out of the, first, out of the force near silence, the low rumble of business in the other classrooms, the sound of fingers brushing away erased words, the awful tick of the wall clock, come four lines into my head. S-O-S, I'm in a mess, and I need you, I must confess. Is that it? Is this what she wants? I'd rather be in gym class, bunched up in a corner with the rest of the skinny boys, fighting for our lives against the jocks in a game of dodgeball, 
of Mrs. Edwards when she reads it, where does it go? And it's some young girl's hand who couldn't care less, and I don't remember. And somehow, somewhere, deep in my wannabe, a soldier, fireman, doctor head. The woman. Daddy and I are in his Buick, stopped at a red light when a young, shapely woman crosses our path. I'm 11 or 12 years old, maybe older, and I'm beginning to form secret opinions. These are the days when we don't really get along, but I keep my mouth shut as he tries to tell me things. I don't like him, but I want something. If I am in the car, it must be to protect my sisters and my shopping interests, except for a few personal items which he leaves to my mother. My father is the one who does all the grocery shopping at our house. He is the only dad we've ever heard of that does this. It is his way of controlling the purse strings, plus, I guess, a way, an excuse for him to get out of the house on weekends. Too bad for us, he tends to think of groceries as fuel. These are the days we are living partly off government surplus, powdered milk and powdered shame. Though we're kids, our tongues and stomachs must know what any foot soldier knows. We crave sweets, seasoning, and the occasional brand name. But we are living with a man who sleeps on the couch and thinks rich crackers are cookies. We have learned that it's far better to be just in the store and grab than try to explain. We are in the car together. I'm surrounded by the smell of grease on rags and the metal toolbox he keeps in the back seat. And though I love the Buick, I don't like him. I am the drunk at the rescue mission. He is the sermon you have to endure before you get to chow down. I'm suffering in silence as he rattles on. These are my impatient days with him. The stuff I'm interested in. Submarines. Flying squirrels. The way a finger skims the surface of a horse chestnut, he cares nothing about. The woman crosses our path. Mm, says my daddy. His eyes are radar on her hips. Look at that heifer. Then the light changes, and off we sail with my father's unheard blessing, sniffing at the heels of the woman's big legs. There is a sensation of stillness in the cab as the rest of the world glides by. I smell the pennies stuck to the bottom of the open glove compartment. For the moment, he thinks we're pals. We're not pals. I'm restless. He thinks we're friends. We're not friends. One, one more for you. Sanctified. Sanctified. Here's the deal according to my mother. My sister and I must go to church until we reach our teens, which is when we'll be old enough to make up our own minds. I'm six or seven years old. My sister, 10 or 11. I think my mother's reasoning has something loosely to do with bar mitzvahs, but it's one of those things you can't negotiate. My younger brother, Roosevelt, who squeals but cannot speak, and is a handful, goes only when she thinks he can use a laying on his hands. My daddy doesn't go. He hates church so much we make up jokes about it. Tongues of lightning flickering down and catching the seat of his heathen pants as he strolls by the church. We laugh at him, but we envy the free pass my mother gives him every Sunday. The Sunday school she forces us to go to most of the time, the Gospel Tabernacle, is a missionary church run by plainly dressed, earnest white people. We're too young to know we are their mission. What we do know is that we hate the dressing up, the girly dresses and the monkey suits, 
The polite but brittle way they make us sit up straight in our seats, the way they expect us to memorize the Bible stories, that somehow we'd be wise not to dispute them, for they are God's deputies. So when our mother decides to take us to her black church one Sunday, we jump at the chance, at least for a while, as we readjust to the rougher surroundings. Her church is in a storefront, loud silk curtains across a plate glass window. Though the lights, their bulbs are on, it takes a second for our eyes to refocus. Here they call my mother, sister. Both churches have an organ, but while the white church whispers, the black church growls. It pulls, it pulls well-dressed women up into a sweat, and men in mohair to lose their jackets and silk ties. In a few fast measures, everyone's on their feet, screaming, moaning, arms flinging up as if they could grab hold of the robe and personally haul the Savior into the first row of folding chairs. For a few minutes, it's amusing to watch. As my sister and I vote with our eyes which plump butt makes the best jar of fool's jelly, but things refuse to settle down. In fact, the church rocks with a noise we've never heard before. Why are they acting like this? Something in their dancing makes us worry if this is something we should be seeing, if someone is going to break in and catch us. This Jesus, they scream for, isn't the one our mother has been sending us away to visit. And speaking of my mother, I'm going to read a poem um, about the um, first time she and my father met. And it's also about process. Um, we were talking about process in, some of the, in the classes yesterday. And this is, this is a process poem. This is one of those poems where, where um, sometimes it, you, you have to um, sort of blindly grope your way towards whatever the poem is going to be, and you never know what's going to be for a while. And sometimes, sometimes you get lucky. Sometimes you, the poetry gods have pity on you. Maybe you did something good. You don't know what you did good. And, and you will get a poem delivered to you. Just, and you know it. You know all you're going to have to do to write this poem is go home and lineate it. That's all you have to do. And my mother told me this story, which I'm about to read to you. That's, that's why I, I said, oh my God, there's a poem. All I got to do is go home and write it. And I did. I got, I got the poem. I, read, I went home. I, I sat down. I, read, I, I, I wrote the poem. The poem got published, got published in this book. And then I asked my mother again, how did you and Daddy meet? And she told me a totally different story. <laughs> but this is the story I'm stuck with. I'm a fool to love you. Some folks will tell you the blues is a woman. Some type of supernatural creature. My mother would tell you, if she could, about her life with my father. A strange and sometimes cruel gentleman. She would tell you about the choices a young black woman faces. It's falling in with some man a deal with the devil in blue terms. The tongue we use but we don't want nuance to get in the way when we need to talk straight. My mother chooses my father after choosing a man who was, as we sing it, of no account. This man made my father look good. That's how bad it was. He made my father seem like an island in the middle of a stormy sea. He made my father look like a rock. And is the blues, the moment you realize you exist in a stacked deck. You look in a mirror at your young face, the face my sister carries, and you know it's the only leverage you've got. Does this create a hurt that whispers, how you gonna do? Is the blues the moment you shrug your shoulders and agree? A girl without money is nothing. Dust to be pushed about by any old breeze. 
compared to this, my father seemed briefly to be a fire escape. This is the way the blue works its sorry wonder. Makes trouble look like a feather bed. Makes the wrong man kisses a healer. Just to be fair to my father. This is a story he told me about my grandfather. And a um, couple things about this is that my father, both, my, both sides of my family grew up in, um, in Florida. Uh, my mother comes from around Gainesville, and my father came from around Tampa. I think he called it West Florida. And, um, and my grandfather, according to him, who I never met, um, owned, owned land. Which is, when you think about it in the, in the 20s and 30s, it was a pretty remarkable thing for an African-American person to do. So this is the story he told me. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I don't know why he started telling me this story or, or whether I asked him for something and he started telling me the story, but this, this, is, this is a true story. King Snake. Sometimes my father's young life will resemble something you'd hear in a Muddy water song, like the time he found out that the lo local hospitals would pay good money for rattlesnakes in order to make anti-venom. Soon he had a penful, and I want to imagine my non-body, his yet-to-be, whispering careful in his ear as he seeks out his dangerous two bits but he's young and reckless, and I know how he gets when he sees a way to grab a buck. I suppose his name gets around West Florida because one day a white man drives up to the house and makes a better offer, one dollar a snake. Of course he takes it, but when the white man who was only paying my father 50 cents shows up, he doesn't take kindly to the new arrangement. He curses my daddy out and threatens to return with the law. This is a story my father thinks is no big deal, really. Just the daily stuff he had to do to live down there. And I can see he's wondering why I want to make something of it. But when the white man comes back, hauling with him the sheriff, he gives me a description of my grandfather, a black man with a long handlebar mustache who owns his land and holds a certain reputation. When angered, we both stammer. Unlike me, no one cares to get him to that point. This is proved by the way my father says the sheriff decides to handle the situation. When the car pulls up, my grandfather stands in the front door. Tall, stout, with Indian blood? No matter. He's a quiet black man on his own land in the South, in the late 20s or early 30s, holding a shotgun, holding a shotgun and saying nothing else. My father can never tell me what my grandfather did to earn this moment, what crazy, selfish, or fearful things came before that would lead the sheriff to side against the wounded pride of a white Southern man. And I want to yell as wind blowing dust across the front yard, watch your step into their ears. But they both know more than I do, that nothing's going to happen, that they're all going to let the poor, silly man yell until his face turns red and he simply runs out of insults. My daddy will never be able to tell me what it was about my grandfather that tells the sheriff this just ain't worth the dance, or what it is in my sister that recalls my granddad to the relatives who knew him. When my daddy was a young boy, he played with rattlesnakes. Can't you just hear Muddy Waters and little Walter juking that out? So, baby, I sure know how to handle
let me read a couple of, of uh, music poems. Because um, I also, as, as some of you might know, I, I play in a band, right? Last night we, 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 you know, we, we played, and it was a really fun gig. And um, my, 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 my band was really impressed with, with, uh, with, with, with everyone here. Um, the um, best story about, about um, the gig last night didn't happen during the gig, but before the gig. Uh, when, 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 we, when we also come to play places with the, that are not officially music places, right? And what I mean by that is that, is that you know, when a band usually comes, there's a sound system and there's a guy behind the mic. Like, like here we have a guy you know, dealing with a microphone. And, and it's really kind of, you know, and, and it's all kind of like professional. Uh, and, and, when, and when we got, when we got to, the, to the hall yesterday, um, we started setting up and the sound guy came down. He said the worst thing you could say to a band, which was, I don't know, I don't, I've, I've never, I never mic'd a band before. And then there was this look on my bass player's face, the musical director of the group, and she saw this look on his, her face as, oh, crap. <laughs> you know, but, but he, but he, but he um, actually was very good, very attentive, listened to all Emma's uh, directions, and then, because where um, the Lincoln Center is, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not a lot of stuff around the center, and there's, and there's no cafe there, so we wanted to get some coffee. And you know, we started talking about various options about getting coffee, and the sound guy says, I'll make you a pot. And he did. He made us a pot of coffee, right? He made us a carafe of coffee. And, and I know it sounds like it's such a good big but it was. There is really no sound guy makes coffee for bands. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's unique to this unique to this area. And that's why, that's why we're gonna, if we're going to remember this gig, we're going to remember the gig because, because this is the gig where the guy made coffee, some guy made his coffee. And the sound was really just, uh, uh, was really great. I, think, I, don't, I don't think anybody complained about, about it. We were happy with the mix. So, 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 so I play in a band. And, and, and one of the things about playing in a band is, like I said, the, um, uh, you know, there's, the, there's, there's, there's that, um, thing that's been running through my poems all along um, about um, uh, about music. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a jazz, I, don't, I, I play guitar, the band's not a jazz band, it's, it's a, uh, you know, it's more of a folk rocky kind of thing, maybe a little blues around, you know, mixed in, but, but, but all the different players come from jazz backgrounds, and I'm a real jazz fan. Um, and the first thing I'm going to read for you is, is um, something that's about Billie Holiday, Charles Mingus, um, and Lester Young. Charles Mingus wrote this song for Lester Young when he died. He was, Lester Young was a saxophone player um, called Goodbye Pork Pie Hat, one of his most favorite uh, famous tunes. And because Lester Young wore a pork pie hat, um, signature. Uh, and, um, um, and Lester Young and Billie Holiday were lovers. And then, and, 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 and with Billie Holiday, a lot of sides and, and played with her live and all that stuff. And then they didn't see each other for a long time. And then there was this show on CBS um, in the 1950s, back in the days when, when uh, networks felt an obligation to actually deal with the arts, right? Before PBS came around, right? Um, uh, um, and um, um, there was this show called The Sound of Jazz. And what they were trying to do was just trying to get the, the hottest and you know, the young uh, cats with the old cats and trying to do a show where they also played together. And, um, and they had a segment where, where Billie Holiday and Lester Young are doing a song called Fine and Mellow. And, 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 and if you guys know anything about Billie Holiday's later years, her declining years, there's always problems with Billie with pitch. Um, and you can hear on some of those sides, you know, basically you can see she's struggling with the note and she's using a lot, of, a lot of musician tricks to try to get through the phrase or different kinds of phrase, phrasing. And, and, and sometimes it's painful to watch and some days she was on. Some days she was off, some days she was on. With this live one shot, one take thing, she was on. Maybe because Lester was there and they, they were old lovers and they were just sparking and maybe it was just muscle memory coming back into play. But they were brilliant. And, and you can see them playing, and, and they, get, they get through the song. And then the song stops, and the camera pulls back. And it's probably, it's probably West 57th Street, and the doors are there. And you see them talking to themselves, and then they, then they walk to the doors, and you see the doors open up, and you can see the street. And, and then um, they're talking to one another, and then they go in opposite directions. And that's the last time they see each other in the world. That's it. 
And within a year, within a year both of them are dead. So, so, so all of this is in the poem, uh, Goodbye Pork Pie Hat. Goodbye Pork Pie Hat. Charlie Mingus wrote this mournful goodbye. Had the horns sound like a room filled with old men watching the barge slip into the river towards the other side. Lost uncles, fathers, brothers, the stink of tobacco, splash of gin, the coolness some of them carried, the ones we think of when we remember certain diners. Because Lester Young had that sound. You could hear it as he played with Billie Holiday in a 50s TV studio, fine and mellow, love that faucet that turns off or on. How that dumb hope, the maybe next time, rises from their lips and tongues and throats. Because Lester soothes the bruises on Billy's voice one last time. They chat, then walk out of the studio into loveless New York, never to meet again. In the elegy, the sound horns sound like a warm hand clasping a cold one on the cooling board, then letting go. Yeah, I'm still on, right? Yes. <laughs> In the middle, I heard this, this, this thing going on. Uh-oh. Here's a contemporary one. Oh, wait. Yeah. Okay. True, true story. My niece Marie explains her Michael Jackson project. The idea for my student film is Michael Jackson's walking down some street when suddenly a big black car pulls up. Out jumps some brothers who haul him in, drive him to a secret location. They tie him down. Out comes a can of black paint and some brushes, maybe a sprayer. They turn him back. They correct what he's done to himself with those drugs, with that BS he told Oprah, with those white boy operations he did to his nose. They take that teacup body of his and remind him. That's where we leave it, in that room with the brothers and the brushes slapping on the truth. Funny. My niece is vicious. <laughs> One about Aretha Franklin, about her hat, <laughs> the inaugural hat. Uh, uh, Aretha, also because, it's also because, um, uh, uh, you know, just, just one of those things where I was thinking about, about the inaugural. Um, Elizabeth Alexander doesn't, doesn't appear in this poem, but, um, but I was thinking about, about her when I wrote, when I wrote the poem. Um, and, and poor Elizabeth, uh, not poor Elizabeth, she's doing fine, but, you know, but, but, but when the poem was, was read, I remember all the controversy about the poem. And um, it, it, was, it, it was one of those things that you can't, because the, the, anyone, if you ever get in the position when a president calls you up and says, I want you to be the inaugural poet, just run. Just run, because, because you can't win. You can't win. Everyone's, gonna, everyone's going to do, kind of compare you to Frost, right? But the thing you need to remember about Frost is that the, the poem that Robert Frost read of the inaugural was not the poem he wrote. You know, and what, and what you're seeing, um, in, you see the film, what you're seeing there is Robert Frost, it's a windy day, it's cold, it's, it's, it's January, he's sitting, he's standing there trying to read the poem, and the wind is blowing, and the glare is coming off, and he can't do it, right? right? And, so, and, so he, and so he does, he, he does a Hail Mary. He, he decides to read The Gift Outright, which is always a crowd pleaser. If you guys know Gala Canal, um, um, he used to have a poem called Oatmeal that was an absolute crowd pleaser. And, and this was his oatmeal, right? That <laughs> was The Gift Outright. And so, 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 so he, 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 switch, he switches gears and reads the poem he knows from memory. If you want to go on, and if you always want to think that, that, uh, that great poets do not write bad poems, you can go online and find the poem that he wrote for the inaugural. It stinks. <laughs> it can give you, give you, you know, you know, make you feel better because you, you know, give you courage to, to realize that even even Ronald Frost can do a stinker. But 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 you know, but 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 but, but that's because the ending. You can't. It's an occasional poem, and you can't 
really an occasional poem. I think, I think Elizabeth Alexander's poem was absolutely wonderful, marvelous, and I, I think it's one of the best of the, the, best of the bunch, um, but that's because I'm, I'm prejudiced, I like her. Um, Retha Franklin's inaugural hat. Look at that hat, my mother might have said, sitting in that bunker the living room had become. Her favorite show was interrupted by the sight of this woman who once sang my sister through one of her major heartbreaks, and I give then take away, man, with a truth which now rose through the house. I was too young to know which kind of truth, really, and my sister was now learning the words. Her belly would soon swell from it. Ain't no way, ain't no way, sang the girl who was slightly older than my sister, old enough to teach it. No way, ain't no way, the needle scratched and scratched again. It's not too far-fetched to think of it breaking skin, a rush of something toxic, tear-raising. Remember when we, remember when she didn't want to tell us, but told us by playing that damn record all day, over and over in her bedroom? That's the woman under that hat, I'd tell my mother if she'd ask. That church hat, that black woman hat, that testimony hat. And I'm going to read one more poem, then read from Brutal Imagination. Uh, maybe to set the, the tone for Brutal Imagination. And this is about, um, this is also about process. Like I said, sometimes you get lucky and someone gives you, gives you, you know, gives you a poem. Sometimes you, you, you have a strong, and sometimes people, if you're a poet, you get into that, uh, and people know that you're a poet. Uh, sooner or later, you will have the moment when your friends will tell you that you are Mr. Poetry Person, and they will give you what they think is going to be this beautiful idea for a poem, for you to write, for them. <laughs> that's right, that's right. You'll love this, you'll love this. You really, this is perfect. This is what, this is what you, you know. And it's not, and it's like, and you want to be polite and something. Usually this happens, I'm very polite and say, that's really nice. You should write the, you should try writing the poem. It's really good, sounds like a really good idea. And this is one of those moments where I was at a writing conference, teaching at a writing conference, and my friend Harriet Pollock, who is a uh, wealthy scholar and a Emmett Till scholar and teaches at Bucknell University, uh, emailed me and said, Could you, this is great, you've got to, this is a poem, you've got to write this, this is a great poem. And, 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 his, and the story was, excuse me, you, don't, you guys don't know about Emmett Till, I hope, you know, the story of Emmett Till, but basically, um, a young African-American male from Chicago goes on to visit relatives in the South um, um, and, and, and is warned about Jim Crow, but just can't believe it, right? Just can't believe that actually, are you kidding? Really? Really? You know? Um, and, and, and he goes down with that attitude. So he goes into a store, and he's, I think he's half challenged by his friends to go talk to the white girl in the store, and he's like, uh, and goes in the store, right? Talks to the girl, and, and does he whistle at her? Does he say something? Oh, it doesn't matter, right? Whatever it was. You know, the woman is offended, tells, you know, some, you know, tells the rest of his, her family that evening some guys show up at, at, at the house where Till is staying and they drag him out of the house. And to say that they kill him is too, is, is too kind of a word. They destroyed him. They ripped his body up and tossed it into the river. Um, and, um, and, and when his body went to his mother, um, was sent to his mother, um, it was time for his funeral. His mother insisted that they keep the casket open so he would see what happened to him. And that's why she put it, I want you to see what they did to my boy. Um, and it was a glass top casket so he didn't look in. So he's buried, years go by. Uh, for some reason he's exhumed after some DNA thing. I don't know what, what the circumstances were. Um, and the law being that you can't rebury a body in the casket twice, but it's a historical you know, you know, uh, thing, right, o object. They, they um, take the casket and put it into a tool shed. And decades go by, years go by. Um, and then the owner of the cemetery uh, falls into some um, uh, legal problems. Um, uh, the police, they, they shut the place down. Authorities come in to check the place out. They see the tool shed, go into the tool shed, find the, the, see the, the, the casket, they open the casket. There's a family of possums living in, the, in Emmett Hill's casket. Harriet was right. <laughs> this is the one time Harriet was right. Emmett Till's glass top casket. 
By the time they cracked me open again, topside, abandoned in a tool shed, I had become another kind of mess. Not many people connect possums with Chicago, but this is where the city ends, after all. And I float still, after the footfalls fade and the roots bloom around us. The fact was, everything that worked for my young man worked for my new tenant. The fact was, he had been gone for years. They lifted him from my embrace, and I was empty, ready. That's how the possums found me, friends. Dry dock, a tattered mercy home. Once I held a boy who didn't look like a boy. When they finally remembered, they peeked through my clear top. Then their wild surprise. Now I'm going to read um, from Brutal Imagination and um, as, as in, in the introduction, um, you guys know the background of where it was. And, and, and again, I was trying to figure that out. Um, the writing of the poems with me is, is, is a way of trying to figure out why you do this. What was the impulse for her to, why was it so easy for Susan Smith to simply just tap into that collective dread we have about the black male body, right? And use it, try to use it to her, to her advantage. Um, it's all, most of the poems are in the voice of, of, of the African-American, um, imaginary African-American male. How I got born. Though it's common belief that Susan Smith wheeled me alive at the moment her babies sank into the lake. When called, I come. My job is to get things done. I am piecemeal. I make my living by taking things. So now a mother needs me clothes and hand-me-downs and a knit cap. Whatever. We arrive bereaved on a stranger's step. Baby, they weep. Poor child. My heart. Susan Smith has invented me because nobody else in town will do what she needs me to do. I mean, jump in an idling car and drive off with two sad and frightened kids in the back. Like a bad lover, she has given me a poisoned heart. It pounds both our ribs black, angry, nothing but business. Since her fear is my blood, and her need, part mythical. Everything she says about me is true. Who am I? Who are you, mister? One of the boys asked from the eternal backseat. And here is the one good thing. If I am alive, then so briefly are they. Two boys returned, three and one, quiet and scared, breathing like small beasts. They can't place me, though there's something familiar. Though my skin and sex is different. Maybe it's the way I drive. Occasionally, glance back with concern. Maybe it's the mixed blessing someone, perhaps circumstance, has given us the secret thrill of hiding. Childish, in plain sight, seen but not seen, as if suddenly given the power to move through walls, to know every secret without permission. We rolled sleepless through the dark streets, but inside, the cab is lit with brutal imagination. 
faith. If you are caught in my part of town after dark, you are not lost. You are abandoned. All that the neighbors will tell your kin is that you should have known better. All they will do is nod their heads. They will feel sorry for you, but rules are rules. And when you were of a certain age, someone pointed a finger in the wrong direction and said, all they do is fuck and drink. All they're good for ain't worth a shit. You recall me now to the police artist. It wasn't really my face that stared back that day, but it was that look. Where am I? Looking for Michael and Alex means that the bushes have not whispered, that the trees hold only shade, that the lake still insists on being a lake. I flicker from TV to TV. My flyer sits on my grandmother's easy chair. I hover over so many lawns, so many cups of coffee. I pour from lip to lip. The town blossoms in yellow ribbons, sprinkled like breadcrumbs or bait. I crackle from cell phones and short wave I'm listened for in alleys. Looking for Michael and Alex means each car is scanned at the drive-through windows that sightings are hoped for at the self-serve pumps. Clerks long for the crook of my arm, reaching for diapers and snacks. So many days I have loped from ear to ear, from beauty parlor to church. They count the days till someone comes back. We've never left. The law. I'm a black man, which means, in Susan's case, that I pour out of the shadow at a traffic light, but I'm also a mother, which is why she has me promise I won't hurt your kids before I drift down the road. I'm which is why we sing. Have mercy, come back, no questions asked. But I'm black, and we both know the law. Who's going to believe that we had no choice but to open that door? Who's going to care that it was now or never, that it was no time to unbuckle them, that it was take the car or leave the car? I'm black, which means mustn't slow down. I float in forces I can't always control, but I'm also a mother, which is why I hope I'm as good as my word. One, two, one true thing. I was made to be a driver, but the truth is, I was, from the beginning, Susan's Amara. The sheriff suspects I sped the car into the lake like the cushioning of a great ship. The fact is, momentum has more than one cure. You should think of a rowboat, a prank of tiny holes drilled into the bottom. A fast car hits the water like a wall of brick and glue, but a car gently pushed, quieter than a cop's imagination, will bob out, fill up, and roll like a leaky can. Composite. I am not the hero of this piece. I am only a stray thought, a solution. But now my face is stuck to lampposts, glued to plate glass. My forehead gets stapled to my hat. I am here and here I am not. I am a door that opens and out walks. No one can help you. Now I gaze straight into your eye from bulletin boards, tree trunks. I am papered everywhere. A blizzard called. You see what happens? I turn up when least expected. If you decide to 
buy some milk. If you decide to wash your car, if you decide to mail a letter, I might tumbleweed upon your pant leg. You can stare and stare, but I can't be found. Susan has loosed me on the neighbors of cold representatives, the scariest face you could think of. Now, um, I'm going to, um, the second uh, section of brutal imagination has other imaginary um, uh, African-American um, uh, men talking about the, the, the story. And, you know, and I was telling one of the classes yesterday, um, I wasn't planning on having the section, but one day I was writing it and suddenly Uncle Tom just pushed in. And, 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 I, and, I, and I, you know, my wife is a novelist, and, you know, and I always roll my eyes when, when a novelist say that, you know, I was writing my, I was writing my novel, and suddenly the character just walked in and just took over the story. Just, just took over, I mean, just, 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 I don't know what happened. It's simply demanded that it needed to go, you know, and, and, and I, I always roll my eyes and go, yeah, yeah, it's you. <laughs> it's you. There's nobody in your head. It's you. You're writing the story. It's fine. You know? but, but, but it really did feel that way. I mean, I just, I'm, not having, I'm not having a conversion moment here, but, but, but this, was, this was a moment when it actually felt like that. Because suddenly I heard Uncle Tom talking and, and really starting to talk in this voice. And I just had to, I just started writing. So uh, Uncle Tom in heaven. My name is Mud. Let's get this out of the way first. I am not a child. I was made to believe that God kept notes, ran a tab on the blows, so many on one cheek, so many on the other. I watch another black man pour from a white woman's head. I fear he'll live the way I did, a brute, a flimsy ghost of an idea, both of us groomed to go only so far. That was my duty. I'm well aware of what I've become. A name children use to separate themselves on a playground. Doesn't matter to know I'm someone else's lie. Doesn't help anything to tell you. I was built to be a hammer, a war cry. Like him, nobody knew me. But in my prime, I filled the streets, worried into the eardrum, scared up thoughts of laws and guns. How I would love not to be dubious, but I am a question whole races spend their time trying to solve. My author believed in God, and being denied the power to hate her, I watched another black man roam the land dull in his invented Now we're back to the gun. What I'm made of. Susan fills our hands with plain objects, key, door handle, steering wheel, but my hands are nothing. A song you can't remember the words to, the button that pops off a vest, a comb, a comb that falls out of a pocket or purse. Susan fills my lungs with air, but what do I breathe out? Parchment, ink, low growls, the blank gap between words. Nothing fits upon my back. Nothing actually catches my eye. I am hidden and found. I am north, south, east, west, my dark skin, porous, in between. Susan cleans. My name is muscle, bone, calls me must tissue and sinew, fills in my blank with the absence of her boys. But I am water, pebble, silt, and gravity. Evidence under her nails. Sympathy. The sheriff's too good to be true. He tries to urge Susan and me to part. He trusts the friendly cup of coffee will skim me loose, but we're hard to untangle, or it won't be easy. We know his help is poison. He is courting us. We run a cold sweat 
while he waits. He is too good to be true. I am not for his ears even though she tries not to weep. He attempts to lean towards her. We bob together in the God-awful silence. And the last poem I'm going to read is the, um, um, is a duet. And what it is, is, is the, what you're going to hear first is the actual lines from Susan Smith's handwritten confession. Um, which is quite a document in itself. And the response is, it's the imaginary man. And, and in class yesterday, I sort of pointed out that this is the only place in the book, uh, in the cycle, where you actually hear Susan Smith. We actually hear her voice. Birthing. When I left my home on Tuesday, October 25th, I was very emotionally I have yet to breathe. I am in the back of her mind. Not even a notion. Scrapple cloth. Way a man lopes down a street. Later, a black woman will say, we knew exactly who she was describing. At this point, I have no language, no tongue, no mouth. I am not me. Yet, I am just an understanding. As I rode and rode and rode, I felt even more anxiety. Susan parks on a bridge, stares over the rail. Below her feet, a dark blanket of river she wants to pull over herself, children and all. I am not the call of the current. She is heartless. She gazes down and imagines swimming. I felt I couldn't be a good mom anymore, but I didn't want my children to grow up without a mom. I am not me yet. At the bridge, one of Susan's kids cries. So, she drives to the lake, the boat dock. I am not yet opportunity. I had never felt so lonely and so sad. Who shall be a witness? Bullfrogs, waterfowl. When I was at John D. Long Lake, I had never felt so scared and unsure. I have yet to be called. Who will notice? in my car, ready to go down that ramp into the water. My hand isn't her hand panicked on the emergency brake. And I did go part way, but I stopped. I am not gravity, the water lapping against the gravel. I went again and stopped.
Susan stared at the sinking. My muscles aren't her muscles, burned from pushing. The lake has no appetite, but it takes the car slowly, swallow by swallow, like a snake. Why was I feeling this way? Why was everything so bad in my life? Susan stares at the taillights as they slide from here to hidden. I have no answer with these questions. She only has me. After she removes our hands from our ears. Thank you. I think there was a, if you guys want to ask a question and answer kind of thing, I, I don't know if that was, that was on my schedule. <laughs> really, <laughs> I can start here. But I mean, I don't, you know, just, just in case. I'll, I don't know what the, what, what the time is here. Yeah. <laughs> Either way is fine, don't worry. Thank you all for coming. Yes. <laughs> Thank you.